0: Good morning, Shabbat Shalom, and welcome to United Israel World Union. This is our Sabbath morning scripture study coming to you live from St. Francisville, Louisiana. Thank you very much for joining us. Today we are continuing our series, The Pentateuch A New Look. And we're working through the text of the Pentateuch. Week by week, we're following the annual cycle of readings. And if you have, most of you do, if you have a calendar, a United Israel calendar, those readings are indicated on the Shabbat. So if you look at Saturday, you'll see. And today, we are in class number 17 of our ongoing study, class 17. We are in the Bible's book of Exodus, and today's reading is called Beshalach, Beshalach. Uh, now, Beish is typically translated when Pharaoh let go or when he let go because Shalach in Hebrew is a word that means literally uh, to send forth. So we are at the place in the narrative where Pharaoh sends the children of Israel out. Last week we covered this. There are a couple of texts which indicate that at this point, while he was reluctant early on and had hardened his heart and so forth, at this point, he literally chases out the children of Israel, sends them forth. Now, you'll recall that in the appeals by Moses and Aaron, when they would go before the court, when they would appear before Egypt's ruler, the phrase that they often would repeat was, shalaketami, translated, let my people go, or Send my people forth. So shalaketam me over and over and over. This request, this appeal, this demand was made, and then ultimately uh, Pharaoh and uh, the people of Egypt chase the children of Israel out. Thus, today's reading be shalak. Now, the story of the Exodus uh, or the departure of the children of Israel begins a section of the Pentateuch, which carries from... Actually, it begins in Exodus chapter 12 and runs all the way through Deuteronomy chapter 34. And this section of text is best described or categorized as the wilderness itineraries. The wilderness itineraries. Because no longer are they in the the land of Egypt, but from chapter 12... Once they leave Ramesses or Avaris, as some people believe, uh, they move to Sukkot and et cetera, et cetera, they begin a journey uh, that we are going to call the wilderness itineraries. Now, go with me this morning. We're going to kick off with the first mention, which actually frames up this wilderness itinerary. Go to Exodus chapter 12. This is from last week's reading, and we're going to pick up in... Exodus 12, verse 37. Exodus 12, verse 37. It says, sort of anticipating the departure. This is written in at a later date, apparently. But the Israelites journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkot, about 600,000 men on foot, aside from children. Moreover, A mixed multitude went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had taken out of Egypt, for it was not leavened since they had been driven out of Egypt and could not delay, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. Uh, The length of time that the Israelites lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430th year to the very day, all the ranks of the Lord departed from the land of Egypt. Now, from this point forward, what we're dealing with in the text of the Pentateuch is the wilderness itinerary. The journey, you could draw a straight line. The journey, although it doesn't follow a straight line, as we'll see, uh, but the journey could have been pretty short. It goes into a lot of detail in the narrative. You know, there is a way from the Delta region, if you look at any Bible map, uh, I have a map behind me if I can point it the right direction, so we know that the children of Israel are in this Nile Delta region. You might have a better map in your Bible that you can pull up close. Someone pointed out to me, by the way, that even though this is at the upper end of Egypt, Uh, this is a mistake. It's not Upper Egypt. It's Lower Egypt. There's a mistake on our map, but just don't worry about it. Play like that's not there. But they're in this region, and ultimately, they're going to come to this area here and cross into the land. That if they were to follow this path, it's called variously in our sources uh, the way of the Philistines because we know that the Philistine people came Probably. uh, Most academics uh, say that they're from the Aegean, they're from uh, Greece and so forth. They come to this region. uh, We now know it as Gaza, even biblically it's called Gaza, but on this western coast toward the sea. This route would have taken them straight into the land of Canaan, but we know that God didn't want to bring them that way because there was a possibility that they would get into armed conflict and he didn't feel they were ready for it. It says very clearly, if they go this way and they meet with war, they'll want to go back to Egypt. So instead, he brings them away through the wilderness. And and so what I am going to do as we work on this study uh, others in our group have done quite a bit of research on this wilderness itinerary as well. Um, and, and so we're just going to do what we can to sort of map that journey. And I want the map up so that I can point at it a couple of times and make some observations. But I want you to really get in. I posted on our Facebook group page a map that's from a National Geographic Uh, I'm not selling it, so I just wanted to share it because I think it's an excellent map of the Nile Delta region. So we're going to be working through this wilderness itinerary, and it begins now. There are going to be challenges ahead in our journey, Um, but it's worth it because this is a central part of the story. No one can pick up the Bible and not find the significance of this wilderness period. Uh, Not only is it historically central to the narrative, but it plays in throughout the biblical text where later biblical writers are going to refer back to it, uh, not only uh, in terms of this great event took place, the Exodus from Egypt, and it's appealed to quite often in the text as sort of a crowning achievement of the God of Israel. In fact, over and over and over it says uh, that Jehovah is the God who brought the children of Israel up out of the land of Egypt, right? We, We find that this is the crowning achievement. It is through this great event or series of events that God makes a name for Himself, not only in biblical literature and among the people of Israel, Uh, but to the neighboring areas as well. So it's central to the story. And and what we find is that while Genesis covers the beginnings of things, once we get into Exodus, uh, from that point on, it's leading us on this journey into the wilderness where Israel will encounter their God, receive the Torah, as it's called, um the 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 laws of god will be communicated to the people of israel preparing them for their life in the land of promise okay now uh this again this exodus event and the images uh, that are conveyed throughout the language and images that are conveyed throughout the narratives of this uh, epic if you will uh play in all the way through the Bible, but they also give us a picture when the prophets want to describe the great coming redemption, they often mention this one for comparison. Uh, The language, the images are used uh, in later examples. Let's look at a couple of examples as we get into this material today. Go with me to Isaiah Isaiah chapter 11, most of you will recognize this as one of those texts which is referred to as being messianic. It's prophetic in its import, uh, and most people will agree that this is looking forward, not looking back. Isaiah 11, beginning in verse 11. In that day, my Lord will apply His hand again uh, to redeeming the other part of His people, from Assyria, as also from Egypt, Patros, Nubia, Elam, Shinar, Hamat, and the coastlands. He will hold up a signal to the nations and assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Then Ephraim's envy shall cease and Judah's harassment shall end. Ephraim shall not envy Judah... And Judah shall not harass Ephraim. They shall pounce on the back of Philistia to the west and together plunder the people of the east, Edom and Moab, shall be subject to them and the children of Ammon shall obey them. Now get this picture. Uh, the Lord, Jehovah, will drop the tongue of the Egyptian sea. He will raise his hand over the Euphrates with the might of his wind and break it into seven wadis so that it can be trodden dry shod. You see the image. It's like the Exodus, right? And thus shall there be a highway for the other part of his people out of Assyria such as there was for Israel when it left the land of Egypt. So this rescue from the land of Egypt, this departure from the land of Egypt and the miraculous uh, events that are tied thereto are also associated with a coming redemption. Look with me um, at the book of Micah, Micah chapter 7, uh, and I just want to read one verse in Micah chapter 7, uh, verse 15. I will show him marvelous deeds as in the day when you sallied forth from the land of Egypt. Now, in context, one has to ask the question who is this that's being spoken of? But it says, some translations will say, I will show them marvelous works or marvelous deeds. But in Hebrew, it's literally him. I will show him. Is this some leader, uh, a Moses-type figure who plays into this second exodus that I'm speaking of? It could very well be. In fact, that is the way most people or many people see that. Go with me to Jeremiah, uh, the book of Jeremiah, and chapter 32, Jeremiah 32 and we're just going to look at verse 20 and 21. Again, the the prophets and later biblical writers are going to look back on these uh, miracles and the leaving of Egypt. It says in verse 20 of Jeremiah 32, you displayed signs and wonders in the land of Egypt uh, with lasting effect. It's actually to this day... And one renowned in Israel and among mankind to this very day. You freed your people, Israel, from the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm with great terror. And then it goes into, you gave them the land of promise, etc. Uh, but again, Jeremiah often, and people have have uh, frequently pointed out how Jeremiah Uh, uses language very similar to what we find in the book of Deuteronomy, more so than any other book. I believe there's a reason for that. But as I pointed out a minute ago, this coming redemption, yes, we look at the exodus from Egypt as the great thing. We're going to talk about that uh, a little bit in just a few moments. But there is a coming redemption, a coming exodus that the prophets talk about that is going to even overshadow that exodus from Egypt. It's going to be so great that people won't even mention the former exodus anymore. Look with me, Jeremiah, while we're in Jeremiah, look at Jeremiah, uh, 16, Jeremiah 16, verse 14. Assuredly, a time is coming, declares Jehovah, when it will no longer be said, as Jehovah lives, who brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. This is an oath. In the Hebrew Bible, where it says, um, as the Lord lives, Jehovah Chai, this is an oath. So people aren't going to make an oath anymore uh, based on the God that brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. This is a big, big point. Now, watch. But rather, as Jehovah lives, who brought the Israelites out of the Northland and out of all the lands to which he had driven them, for I will bring them back to their land, which I gave to their fathers. So great is this exodus going to be, this future exodus, this future departure, it's going to overshadow the exodus from Egypt. That is marvelous as it was with, with deeds and wonders and so forth, signs and wonders It can't even compare with what's coming. And why is that? Because the children of Israel, according to the prophets and according to the historical narrative that we find in the Hebrew Bible, is no longer just in one nation. They've been scattered, Amos says, through all nations as corn is sifted through a sieve, yet not the least grain will fall to the ground. My eyes are on all their ways, says Amos. Now look with me, Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23 in verse 7 basically has the same uh, text that we just read. Assuredly, a time is coming, declares Jehovah, when it will no more be said as Jehovah lives who brought the Israelites out of the land of Egypt, but rather as Jehovah lives who brought out and led the offspring of the house of Israel from the north and from all the lands to which I banished them, and they shall dwell upon their own soil. Marvelous promises. Now, the second exodus, about which the Bible has plenty to say, I've only touched a couple of verses. There are uh, dozens of texts which point to this greater exodus. And, and there's, the Bible has much to say, but it's going to be so great. I want to stress this that no longer will people even make an oath about the God who brought the children of Israel up out of Egypt. And we can talk about it today, which we are going to, because this other exodus hasn't taken place yet. But there's coming a time when if you brought up, if someone said, hey, you remember the story about how God brought up Israel out of Egypt? Somebody in the group would say, why would you even talk about that? That's not, I mean, pfft. That's nothing compared to what he did, and he brought Israel up out of all the nations. This is the image. Now, the miraculous events um, are declared in the future even greater than those in the history. Now, last week, I ended with Deuteronomy chapter 4. I want to go back there this morning, and I want to kick off our new look today with this text, If nothing else, this is going to bring clarity in case I wasn't clear last week as I closed my class. Uh, Deuteronomy 4, let's go to verse 32. You have but to inquire about bygone ages that came before you ever since God created man on earth from one end of heaven to the other, has anything... As great as this ever happened, or has its like ever been known? Has any people heard the voice of a God speaking out of a fire as you have and it survived? Or has any God ventured to go and take for himself one nation from the midst of another by prodigious acts, by signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty and an outstretched arm, and awesome power as Jehovah your God did for you in Egypt? before your very eyes it's been clearly demonstrated uh, to you that Jehovah is alone God there is none beside him now I just want to make a point that this particular text refers to something as this great thing now uh, part of this great thing is the fact that God spoke to Israel from the midst of the fire clearly a reference to to what takes place at Horeb, right? You have God speaking from the midst of the fire. Uh, It's this awesome event, and and that's part of this great thing. But it says, or has any God ever ventured to take a people from the midst of another people? So this great thing, according to Deuteronomy, is the two sections. It's all about the wilderness uh, journey, by the way has to do with Sinai and the exodus from Egypt. And that exodus from Egypt includes the signs and wonders that led to it coming to pass. Now, but I want to keep reading um, about this great thing and the purpose, therefore, let's go back to 35. It's been clearly demonstrated to you or shown to you That Jehovah alone is God. There's none else beside Him. From the heavens, He let you hear His voice uh, to discipline you. On earth, He let you see His great fire. And from the midst of the fire, you heard His words. And because He loved your fathers, He chose their heirs after them. He Himself, in His great might, led you out of Egypt to drive from your path nations greater and more populous than you, to take you into their land and assign to you it as a heritage, as is still the case. Know therefore this day and keep in mind that Jehovah alone is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath there is no other. Observe His laws and commandments which I enjoin upon you this day, that it may go well with you and your children after you, and that you may long remain in the land of that Jehovah, uh, your God, is assigning to you for all time. Now, the great thing, the exodus from Egypt with signs and wonders and the giving of the law at Horeb, this great thing, are meant to indicate, to stress upon the people, to cause them to know that Jehovah, Hu Ha Elohim, Jehovah is God and there is no other. Now, the interesting thing about this, I should point out, is that this text, at least part of what I just read, comes from a later period. Now, how do I know that? And the reason I want to bring this up, uh, people might be curious, why would you bring that up? You know, I'm not trying to shake anybody's faith here. What I'm doing is showing you signs uh, that indicate a later editing so that we can get back to What was the original text? For instance, in this particular place, in this particular text, uh, it says that they've entered the land, and because he loved your fathers, etc. Let's see, let's see where it says uh, to drive, verse 38, to drive from your path nations greater and more populous than you. Uh, to take you into their land and assign it to you as a heritage. That hasn't happened yet. You say, well, it's just looking forward to the time when it does happen. You know, but wait a minute. But it says, as it is this day. So what this means is that at a period of time, when the children of Israel have gone into the land and they've chased out the other inhabitants of the land and they've been there for some time, The text is edited to say, oh, by the way, this is still the case to this day, all right? But they, at this point, they've not entered the land, nor have they driven out nations greater and mightier than them. They've not been brought into the land to inherit it, Uh, as it is this day is a big clue. Always look for that phrase. It's not always an indication of a later edit, but quite often it is, you know? because that's not something that a contemporary writer uses to indicate a contemporary event. So if I say, uh, as it is this day, if I say that in my language, it means, uh, you know, it's been like that for a while, even to this point, okay? Now, uh, the Bible is very consistent in, in this point, and that is that the people of Israel are in Egypt and they leave. Through acts, prodigious acts, signs and wonders, God brings them out of the land of Egypt into the wilderness. They are in the wilderness for approximately 40 years, according to our narratives, and then they go into the land. Now, people can debate the details, uh, but this is a very important portion of Scripture. Again, it takes up most of the Pentateuch, the wilderness itineraries. We're going to be looking as we go through this, when we study the route, we're going to be talking about uh, comparing text in Exodus and uh, the book of Numbers, which by the way in Hebrew is, as you know, bamid bar, in the wilderness. It's not Numbers, it's in the wilderness and the book of Deuteronomy. So we're gonna be comparing. We're gonna be reading horizontally. If one text, say in Exodus, says that they go from this point to this point, we want to check that and compare that by reading horizontally. We wanna look at the book of uh, Numbers, particularly Numbers chapter uh, 33, but there are other texts in in Bamibar. We wanna compare. Are the routes consistently uh, reported? One thing that appears certain is that all of our texts have this great exodus, this great departure. Part of it is going through the sea. I mean, that's the story. The story is that the children of Israel go through the sea. The Egyptians are chasing after them. So Israel leaves Egypt. Egypt Egypt realizes, hey, what have we done here? We let our slave labor leave. Let's go get them. And they chase after them. And God helps the children of Israel by opening the sea, uh, by causing the children of Israel to go over dry shod. The waters take out the Egyptians who pursue them. Now, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to read Exodus chapter 14 in its entirety because this is the story as we have it. Now, there's a song about the crossing of the sea. Exodus 15, the song of the sea. Some people call it the song of Moses, but it's not. Uh, It's called the song of the sea. Exodus 14, verse 1. Jehovah said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp before Pihachirot between Migdal and the sea before Baal-Zaphon you shall encamp facing it by the sea. And Pharaoh will say of the Israelites, hey, they're astray in the land. The wilderness is closed in on them. Then I will stiffen Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Jehovah. And they did so. And when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his courtiers had a change of heart about the people and said, what is it that we've done releasing Israel from our service? And he ordered his chariot and took his men with him. He took 600 of his picked chariots and the rest of the chariots of Egypt with officers in all of them. And Jehovah stiffened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he gave chase to the Israelites. As the Israelites were departing, Defiantly. The Egyptians gave chase to them, and the chariot horses of Pharaoh, his horsemen, his warriors overtook them by the sea near Pihirok before Baal Zaphon. Now you're getting all sorts of geography here. Are you following this? It's going to be important because we have to figure out where did the sea crossing happen? I mean, is it in this region here? Is it here? Is it here? Well, Let's see what we can figure out. As Pharaoh drew near verse 10, the Israelites caught sight of the Egyptian advancing on them. Greatly frightened, the Israelites cried out to Jehovah, and they said to Moses, was it for one of graves in Egypt that you brought us to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us taking us out of Egypt? Is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt saying, let us be, we'll serve the Egyptians, for it's better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness? So first, we've heard of this, by the way. We don't have a record of them saying that previously. But Moses said to the people, Have no fear. Stand by and witness the deliverance which Jehovah will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. Jehovah will battle for you. You hold your peace. Then Jehovah said to Moses, Why do you cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to go forward. And you lift up your rod. Hold out your arm over the sea and split it so that the Israelites may march into the sea on dry ground, and I will stiffen the hearts of the Egyptians so that they go in after them, and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his warriors, his chariots, his horsemen. Let the Egyptians know that I am Jehovah when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. The angel of God, who had been going ahead of the Israelite army, now moved and followed behind them. And the pillar of cloud shifted uh, from in front of them and took a place behind them. Came to pass uh, between the army of the Egyptians and the army of Israel. Thus, there was the cloud with the darkness and it cast a spell. This is JPS, by the way. Doesn't matter. I'm looking for something else. Upon the night so that one could not come near the other all through the night. Uh, Then Moses held up his arm over the sea, and Jehovah drove back the sea with a strong east wind all that night and turned the sea into dry ground. The waters were split. The Israelites went into the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall from them for them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians came in pursuit after them into the sea, all of Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen. At the morning watch, Jehovah looked down upon the Egyptian army from the pillar of fire and cloud and threw the Egyptian army into a panic. He locked the wheels of their chariots so that they moved forward with difficulty. The Egyptians said, Let us flee from the Israelites, for Jehovah is fighting for them against Egypt. Then Jehovah said to Moses, Hold out your arm over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians and upon their chariots and upon their horsemen, Moses held out his arm over the sea and at daybreak, the sea returned to its normal place and the Egyptians fled at its approach, but the Lord Jehovah hurled the Egyptians into the sea. The waters turned back and covered the chariots and the horsemen, Pharaoh's uh, entire army that followed them in the sea, not one of them remained, but the Israelites had marched through the sea on dry ground waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. Thus, Jehovah delivered Israel that day from the Egyptians. Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the shore of the sea, and when Israel saw the wondrous power which Jehovah had wielded against the Egyptians, the people feared Jehovah. They had faith in Jehovah and His servant Moses. One of the greatest stories in the Bible. The great miracle... At the sea. We've got some questions that come from this study. Namely, what body of water are they talking about? Does the Bible give us any indication where the crossing took place? Now I know some people would say, I don't know. I don't know and I don't care. Well, for me, it's important. The details matter. The facts matter. I want to know where was this crossing. And I know there are differences of opinions. And there are movies that make use of great CGI effects and and just fabulous uh, uh, movies. Now, a lot of people think that their faith has to match what they've seen in the movie uh, or they're not being faithful enough. But I suggest to you, that our goal is to understand what the Bible presents as truth and not add other details to it. So I want to look at the story uh, from a realistic standpoint. I want to ask, what sea, what sea is it that they cross? What wilderness is it that they go into? And, and can we discern from the facts that we have what body of water it was? We don't know. We have to ask ourselves, how long has it been since they left Egypt? Do we know? I mean, when we read the story, that would be helpful. I mean, if it's only been a couple of days, it's presented as if they leave and then Pharaoh and his courtiers say, hey, what have we done? Let's go chase after them. It feels like it's a pretty quick uh It's a short period of time between those two. We don't know. It doesn't say. We do have some key points that indicate timing that come in later, but at the present, we just don't know. How far have the children of Israel gone? Uh, How long have they gone before this confrontation happens at the sea? And again, what sea are we talking about? This body of water is known, you can see I'm pointing to something you can't see. I just noticed on my monitor. But the Red Sea is this large body of water here. This branch, the northwestern branch of the Red Sea, is referred to as uh, the Gulf of Suez. This northeast branch is referred to as the Gulf of Aqaba. Now, the question is, Is it the body, the big body of water known as the Red Sea that they cross? Is it the northwestern arm, the Gulf of Suez? Is it the northeastern arm, the Gulf of Aqaba? Some have proposed this area here, this particular region here with this water. So we have to wonder, where is it? Where did that miracle take place and what does it look like? What would it look like? I mean... It's going to look a lot different if the water is divided in the Red Sea or in the Gulf of Suez or the Gulf of Aqaba than it will in this region here. But but we have to understand, what is the Bible telling us? What does it say it looks like? Does it look like Mahoney, uh, his movie? Is that what it looks like? Or, or is it like... Uh, the Charlton Heston scene where, uh, where they're crossing in the Ten Commandments movie. What, what, what does it look like? Now, let's, let's go through some text here. Uh, Exodus 15, verse 4. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he is cast into the sea. and The pick of his officers are drowned in the Sea of Reeds. Now we've got a name, Sea of Reeds. The deep covered them. They went down into the depth like a stone. Your right hand, O Jehovah, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Jehovah, shatters the foe. In your great triumph, you break your opponents. You send forth your fury. It consumes them like straw. At the blast of your nostrils, the water piled up, and the flood stood straight like a wall. The deeps froze in the heart of the sea. The foes said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide, spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will bear my sword, my hand shall subdue them. You made your wind blow, the sea covered them, and they sank like lead into the majestic waters. This is poetic. And people draw certain conclusions based on this text. Let's read a few more. Look at Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 11, uh, Deuteronomy 11, and verse 2 through 4, 11, 2 through 4 of Deuteronomy. Take thought this day that it was not your children who neither experienced nor witnessed the lesson of the Lord your God. His majesty, His mighty hand, His outstretched arm, the signs and the deeds that He performed in Egypt against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and all his land, what He did to Egypt's army, its horses and chariots, how Jehovah rolled back upon them the waters of the Sea of Reeds when they were pursuing you, thus destroying them, once and for all, what He did for you in the wilderness before you arrived at this place. right. Now look with me at the book of Joshua. I'm just going to read through a few of these, and then we're going to see if we can't make some uh, associations and get a better picture for where this sea crossing is, this major event. Joshua chapter 2, verse 10. For we have heard... How Jehovah dried up the water of the Sea of Reeds for you when you left Egypt. And what you did to Sihon and Og and two Amorite kings across the Jordan whom you doomed. All right. so this description is interesting. In Joshua chapter 2, uh, when the opponents of Israel, they, they hear, they in fact this is, uh, where is this? This is the story of Rahab and Jericho. What, they're in Jericho, but they've heard about the sea crossing. The way they described it is God dries up the water of the sea. Now, that's an interesting reading. It's interesting the way that's, that's worded. Dries up the water of the sea of reeds. Okay, go with me to Psalm uh, 77. Psalm 77 and verse 19. Psalm 77, verse 19. And it says, Your thunder rumbled like wheels. Lightning lit up the world. The earth quaked and trembled. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the mighty waters. Your tracks could not be seen. You led your people like a flock in the care of Moses and Aaron. These are just different ways that The Bible describes the crossing through the sea. Look at chapter 78 and verse 12. He performed marvels in the sight of their fathers in the land of Egypt, the plain of Zon. He split the sea and took them through it. He made the waters stand still like a wall. He led them with a cloud by day and through the night by the light of fire. This particular passage, uh, by the way, that's verse 20 and 21 in, uh, no, I'm sorry, Uh, the previous I I had in my notes. The previous I said Psalm 77, 19 and 20, it's 20 and 21 in Hebrew. This is chapter 12, uh, verse 12 and 13 of 78. It refers to the fields of Zoan. Now, where is that? It's going to give us an idea, maybe. We're going to come back to that. Look at verse 43 of Psalm 78. 43, um, how he displayed his signs in Egypt, his wonders in the plain of Zoan. Hmm. Where is Zoan? Because Zoan is associated with the crossing of uh, the miracle at the sea, and the signs and wonders in Egypt. So let's look at a couple of passages and see if we can't nail that down. Uh, look at Isaiah, Isaiah 19, Isaiah 19 and verse 11. Isaiah 19, 11. <clears throat> it says, Utter fools are the nobles of Tanis." The sages of Pharaoh's advisers have made absurd predictions. How can you say to Pharaoh, "I am a scion of these sages uh, of Ketamite kings"? Where it says, uh, "Where indeed are your sages?" Let them tell you. Let them discover what Jehovah of Hosts has planned against Egypt. The nobles of Tanis have been fools. The nobles of Memphis deluded. This particular area is talking about Zon, and it's looking, I'm I'm reading a translation that doesn't even include it, but this is the same area, and it's referring to Egypt, to Titus, to Memphis. Look at chapter 30, uh, verse 4 of Isaiah. Through his office, though his officers are present in Zon, and his messenger reaches as far as, Hanes, they all came to shame because of a people that does not avail them. Again, in context, this is dealing with the land of Egypt. Look at verse two of chapter thirty. Who set out to go down to Egypt, asking me, without asking me, to seek refuge with Pharaoh, to seek shelter under the protection of Egypt? And then it goes on and talks about the, the area called Zon. Um, One other passage, look at Ezekiel chapter 30, Ezekiel chapter 30 and verse 4, Ezekiel 30, uh, I'm sorry, verse 14, verse 14 of Ezekiel 30, uh, I will say to Patros, waste, I will say to Zon, I will execute judgment on no, I will pour my anger upon sin, the stronghold of Egypt. So here we've got four references to Zon, other than the Psalm, uh, the Psalm 78, that put Zon, the place of these miracles, in the fields of Zon, which is telling us it's somewhere in the land of Egypt. Now, the question becomes, where is Egypt? Uh, Where are the division? Where are the, the, the boundaries of Egypt? But we'll get to that. Now, go with me to Psalm 106. Psalm 106. And I want to look at uh, verse beginning in verse 7, Psalm 106, verse 7. Our forefathers in Egypt did not perceive your wonders. They did not remember your abundant love, but rebelled at the sea, at the sea of reeds. Yet he saved them, as befits his name, to make known his might. He sent his blast against the sea of reeds. It became dry. It became dry. Interesting. He led them through the deep as through a wilderness. He delivered them from the foe, redeemed them from the enemy. Water covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. They believed His promise and sang His praises. Again, a drying, but crossing through the deep. The poetic passages in the Bible uh, describe this, the depth, you know, doesn't say how deep, but there is this idea. It's not just a puddle, but there is this idea that the wind dries up the sea. Now, I want you to look at Psalm 136, and then we'll start unpacking this. Uh, Psalm 136, verse 13. Who split apart the sea of reeds? His steadfast love is eternal. And made Israel to pass through it. His steadfast love is eternal. Who hurled Pharaoh and his army into the sea of reeds? His steadfast love is eternal. And one other passage I want to look at. uh, Look at Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. And I'm going to read 9 through 11. Nehemiah 9, 9 through 11. You took note of our fathers' affliction in Egypt and heard their cry at the Sea of Reeds. You performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, all his servants, and all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted presumptuously toward them. You made a name for yourself that endures to this day. You split the sea before them. They passed through the sea on dry land, but you threw their pursuers into the depth like a stone into the raging waters. The fields of Zon in Egypt. Any other clues about where we're at? All right. Now, a lot of people uh, say that the sea crossing happens here. The Gulf of Aqaba. This is a very popular theory right now. A lot of people go with this because, in their mind, they have Sinai in what is now Arabia. By the way, this is not Arabia in the ancient times. This is not where, you, but but they want to put it there, and a lot of that's based on a Christian interpretation uh, where Paul talks about Sinai is in Arabia. But but this is a popular place. Yeah, and they like it. Most people like this because that is a big, big, big miracle, you know, to cross here. We're going to talk about how big that is in a moment. Some like it here. They, they like to put the sea crossing here and the Gulf of is. It's not as big of a miracle. We're going to talk about how big, but it's big. And then some people put it here. And this is not so popular because in lines... It doesn't meet the biblical criteria, but we're going, to, we're going to examine that. Go with me, Exodus chapter 14. Exodus 14, verse 1 and 2. We read this, but I want to touch this one more time. Jehovah said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp before Pihah, he wrote, between Migdal and the sea. Before Baal Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. Now, if wherever the sea crossing happens, we're going to have to find Baal Zephon, Pi Haherot, Migdal. Is it here? Is it here? Can any of these be found? That's the question. And if they are, would it put us here, here, or here? Because that's where the crossing happens. We've already got that miracles happen in the field of Zon, which is going to be in Egypt. So I want to get, uh, we call like uh, my, my friend, you know, Dave Tyler, he always talks about the theory of constraints and we want to try to find points of reference. We want to say, okay, if the field of Zon is there in Egypt, do we have other points that put us there for the crossing of the sea? Now, we, we do have uh, one place that's mentioned that's called Migdal, Migdal. Migdal is at the crossing point. So is Migdal here at the Gulf of Aqaba? Is it here at the Gulf of Suez, or is it here in the land of Egypt? Because Migdal is one of the places. Well, let's just look. Migdal does occur in the Bible. Um, Let's look at Numbers 33. Numbers 33. By the way, Numbers 33, we know this text is the staging points, uh, the children of Israel, their marches. Uh, chapter 33 of Numbers, verse 6 through 8. They set out from Sukkot, encamped at Etam, which is on the edge of the wilderness. This is right when they leave Egypt. Where is Sukkot? It's in Egypt. Where is, uh, we're talking about on the edge of the wilderness. What wilderness? Well, I'm going to show you. It's going to be pretty simple in a minute. Okay, set out from Etam, turned about toward Pihahirot, which faces Baal Zafon, and they encamped before Migdal. They're still in Egypt. They set out, verse 8, they set out from Pinehahirot, called Pihahirot in other places, and passed through the sea into the wilderness, and they made a three-day journey in the wilderness of Etam, and encamped at Mara. All right. So far, it doesn't look like they've even left Egypt, and yet they cross a sea. Now, well, I'm just going to leave that there for a moment. Let that sink in. And then you have to ask yourself, at this point in the journey, they've crossed the sea. Are they here, leaving Egypt, are they Gulf of Suez? Has there been any description of a southward turn yet? No. Or are they at the Gulf of Aqaba? Okay. Now, where else is Migdol? Let's confirm. Because there is a Migdal in Egypt, which says that the crossing of the sea happens when they're leaving Egypt. Now you could say, well, that might be the Gulf of Suez. Okay, we'll talk about that. But... They clearly, clearly are in Egypt. Migdal. Look at Jeremiah uh, 44. Jeremiah 44. Just to make sure that we've got the right Migdal. Uh, Then the word, uh, verse verse 1, Jeremiah 44. Then the word which came to Jeremiah for all the Judeans living in the land of Egypt, living in Migdal, Tapanes. Noph, in all the land of Patros. All right, so Migdal is where? Egypt. Let's look at 46 of Jeremiah. 46 of Jeremiah in verse 14. Declare it in Egypt. Proclaim it in Migdal. Where's Migdal? It's in Egypt. Still in Egypt. Uh, How about Ezekiel 29? This is later. Uh, Ezekiel 29... Let's see where Migdal is now. 29 and verse 10. Uh, assuredly, I, will, I am going to deal with you and your channels. I will reduce the land of Egypt to utter ruin and desolation from Migdal to Cyrene, all the way to the border of Nubia. All right, so that puts Migdal in Egypt. Chapter 30 and verse 6 is my last reference. Thus says Jehovah... Those who support Egypt shall fall, and her proud strength shall sink. There they shall fall by the sword from Migdal to Sain. Migdol is in Egypt. Zon is in Egypt. They've not yet left Egypt proper when the crossing takes place. Now, some people might look at this map and say, well, this is the Sinai. Egypt, uh, this is modern Egypt. We're, ta- we're, not talking, we're not talking about the modern definitions of these areas. What was Egypt then, and what was this wilderness area? Was that Egypt proper? Now, I know there are differences of opinion, but I'm trying to give you clear-cut references. The sea is close to Migdol. Now, I posted this map, and I want you to look at where Migdal is, we know where Migdal is. It's pretty certain. So if Migdal is in that delta region, it stands to reason that the sea that they cross is in that area. And you know how I know that? Because it says it happened there. Now, what wilderness do they cross into? If you look at chapter 15 of Exodus, uh, Exodus 15 In verse 22, I want to make another point Um, because once they cross the Sea of Reeds, whether it's here, here, or here, they enter into a wilderness that we know. It says the wilderness of Shur. Now, the question becomes, where is the wilderness of Shur? If the crossing of the sea uh, is here, the wilderness of Shur has to be east of the Akaba, the Gulf of Akaba. I'm, I'm trying to keep this as simple as possible. And, and it would, it would be, that would be it. But we know where the wilderness of Shur is, and it's not here. It's just not. We know where it is. Look at Exodus 15:24, uh, 22. Then Moses caused Israel to set out from the Sea of Reeds. They went on into the wilderness of Shur, and they traveled three days in the wilderness and found no water. Okay. But that doesn't tell me where it is. I have two other verses that, that might uh, help me understand. By the way, Shur, look up. Do a study on the way of Shur, S-H-U-R. Throughout the patriarchal narratives, this area in here... It's the way of Shur, because this is the wilderness of shore. It's here. It's east of what was ancient Egypt. Okay, look with me at 1 Samuel. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 27. 1 Samuel 27 and verse 8. First Samuel 27 and verse 8. And by the way, there are a lot of different theories on all this, um, but a lot of people will latch on to one person who provides evidence that suggests their particular view. So uh, you have to stay tuned. You have to watch for that. Let's not overreact because, you know, there are differences of opinion. I've read all of these guys. I know many of you have as well. We have to go first with what we know. So rather than someone suggest something, we have to prove it, put it to the test. 1 Samuel 27, 8, David and his men went up and raided the Gershurites, the Gizrites, and the Amalekites, who were the inhabitants of the region of Olam, all the way to Shur and to the land of Egypt. All right, so that kind of gives us an idea. The way of Shur is to the land of Egypt, so it's on that path doesn't nail it down too specific, but look at 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15 and verse 7. And Saul destroyed Amalek from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is close to Egypt. Shur is close to Egypt. Now, literally in the Hebrew it says east of Egypt. So when they leave Egypt and they cross into the wilderness of Shur, this is the wilderness of Shur. We know that. So if someone suggests that the whole Sinai region is Egypt, uh they and, and there are some who propose that, but it's not the best uh argument. What we find is that this region is clearly uh, dominated by other people groups. Egypt has a presence in there at a much later period, uh, but this is basically the marker, you know, in this region here. Uh, Some people will put it here, you know, where you have what's called the Wadi of Egypt, uh, but that's for another class. Now, what I'm suggesting is that the sea, must be in this region and not here and certainly not here. Now, the question becomes, why can't this region here be the miracle at this sea? Why can't it? Yom Suf. Well, it's called the Sea of Reeds, but the problem is, guess what? This is called the Sea of Reeds biblically. This is called the Sea of Reeds biblically. And this is called the Sea of Reeds biblically. So then you have a choice. You say, well, I've got three places called the Sea of Reeds. Look at 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 26. Now what you ever you know that a lot of people will utilize the part of the evidence that supports their hypothesis and not the others. So if I want to say that God did the miracle of the sea over here uh, at the Gulf of Aqaba, then I'm only going to show you this verse and, and those that say this. 1 uh, Kings nine twenty six. King Solomon also built a fleet of ships at Ezion-Geber, which is near Elot. That's still Elot to this day. Uh, on the shore, of the shore of the Sea of Reeds in the land of Edom. So there you go. If I want to push this theory and say this is where they cross, I'll say, huh, the Bible says this is the Sea of Reeds. But again, it also calls the Gulf of Suez a Sea of Reeds, and it calls this, uh, this region here the Sea of Reeds. Now, the interesting thing is that Yom Suf, Suf, Meaning reed, most scholars associate it with reed. You're going to find the reeds in that marshy area that I'm talking about. And it's where God dried up this marshy region. Okay. Go back to Exodus 10. This is our first reference to uh, the Sea of Reeds, Exodus 10, 19. They're in Egypt. There's a plague of locusts that's unleashed on the people of Egypt and it says in verse 19 of Exodus 10, Then Jehovah caused a shift to a very strong west wind which lifted the locusts and hurled them into the Sea of Reeds. Not a single locust remained in all the territory of Egypt. Now, if... If that, it's very close to our Exodus and the crossing of the Sea of Reeds, a strong west wind pushes the locust. Now, you could it could, if it's a real strong, could have said it blew them into the sea of the Dead Sea, you know, but that's not what it says. It says the Sea of Reeds. Now, what's the most logical from this area here? It's in this area this sea of reeds, either here in the north, in the Nile Delta, the marshy area, in the Gulf of Suez, but likely not here. Now, that doesn't mean that the Exodus crossing can't happen here, but it means that those locusts weren't blown here, they were blown here. There are other things in my mind that say this is absolutely impossible, Uh, but that's for later. Now, uh, look at Numbers 33 again. Numbers 33, verses 9 through 11. Numbers 33. They set out from Mara, came to Elim. There were twelve springs at Elim, and seventy palm trees. So they encamped there. They set out from Elim and camped by the Sea of Reeds. They set out from the Sea of Reeds and encamped in the wilderness of sin. And then they set out from the wilderness of sin, and it goes on. Now, this, this describes they've already crossed the sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. We know where the wilderness of Shur is. It's this area. They go south. There are better maps I want you to look at. And they camp by the Sea of Reeds, I believe that that is they're on the east side of the Gulf of Suez, the east side of the Gulf of Suez. But they're there, so because you get the idea is how do they leave the Sea of Reeds? They cross through the Sea of Reeds, and then they they're on the other side, and they camp by. It. Well, it's clearly because they've turned south, southward in their direction. Okay, but the real reason that this miracle is not liked by some people, the crossing here. The reason they don't like it is because that doesn't meet their expectations of a biblical miracle. That's the bottom line. Um, They want the water to be deep, really, really deep. And if it's not deep, 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 then they say it can't be a miracle. Well, I'm going to disprove that. So, first of all, a lot of people think they're doing the Bible a favor by uh, espousing the more miraculous or advancing the view that, that in order for this to be a miracle, uh, God has to have the sea, it's got to be something that's at least 10 to 20 miles across, and at least an average of 130 meters deep. That's the Gulf of Suez. The Gulf of Suez is 10 to 20 miles wide. You know, you got You look at the map and it varies. And it is an average of 130 meters, 450 feet deep. The first thing I want you to do is, if the miracle takes place there, you know, people draw this, uh, this miracle or they put it on screen and they show the water and it might be, you know, higher than the roof of a building, you know, but th- we're talking 450 feet. Now, that's a miracle. That's the way people want their miracles. They want them big. Got to be big. You Do you realize, I want you to think about that. Now, how wide, it doesn't say how wide, but let's say it's, uh, I don't know, a mile wide. Uh, I wouldn't want to be That'd be scary, 450 feet deep, okay. Or <clears throat> the Gulf of Aqaba. <clears throat> Gulf of Aqaba, now that's a big miracle. It is nine to 15 miles across, depending on you know, where you put the crossing point. Most people put it at Nueva. Go look this up, because people say, well, there's a shelf under the water. But they could have walked on the shelf. It's, that's how the miracle happened. Yeah, well, go see how deep that shelf is. So let's just talk about depth. You, you do your study. People have to make up their own mind. But uh, if you look at the Gulf of Aqaba, Gulf of Aqaba Ak- is 9 to 15 miles wide depending on where you measure it, and 800 meters deep. 800 meters deep. That's deep, that's deep, that's a big miracle. Uh, and, and the proposed crossing site, you know, people have different ideas and they'll come up with different numbers, but a lot of what I've found is that at the proposed crossing site, it's 300 meters deep, you know. Okay. The Nile Delta Theory. Is it possible? I think it is, but it's just too puny for, for people. Again, they, they, they want to imagine their miracle has gotta be uh, big, big, big. But the question is, why would you? Why would we, why would anyone seek to find a justification for an area that doesn't fit other points of, of reference? Our theory of constraints, when we work on the data points, we're in the field of zone, we're, we're close to Migdal, where all of these points point us to that area where this marshy area, where it's dried up. Now, it says that a wind pushed it, and then the wind brings it back later. Now, Could that be devastating? Again, people say, no, it's got to be deep, because it says that the water or the walls, they're walls of water. They came crashing down on the Egyptians, and, and they use a lot of this poetic language. Now, but let's look at a couple more texts. Go with me to Joshua... Joshua chapter 3, Joshua 3, and let's go to verse 9. Joshua said to the Israelites, come closer and listen to the words of Jehovah your God. By this, Joshua continued, you shall know that a living God is among you and that he will dispossess for you the Canaanites, the Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites to Jebusites, the ark of the covenant of the sovereign of all the earth is advancing before you into the Jordan. Now select 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one man from each tribe. When the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the sovereign of all the earth, come to rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan, the water coming from upstream will be cut off and will stand in a single heap. When the people set out from their encampment to cross the Jordan, the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant were at the head of the people. Now the Jordan keeps flowing over its entire bed throughout the harvest season, but as soon as the bears of the Ark reached the Jordan and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark dipped into the water at its edge, the water's coming down from upstream, piled up in a single heap, a great way off at Adam, the town next to Zarethan. And those flowing away downstream to the sea of the Arava, the Dead Sea, ran out completely, so the people crossed near Jericho. The priest, who bore the Ark of Jehovah's Covenant, stood on dry land exactly in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel crossed over on dry land until the entire nation had finished crossing the Jordan. So this says that when the priest's feet touched that the water, the next town up at Adam, stood up like a wall of water. And and they crossed over on dry ground. It's a miracle. But wait, there's more. Look at chapter 4, verse 19. The people came up from the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month and encamped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. And Joshua set up in Gilgal the twelve stones that had taken they had taken from the Jordan, and he charged the Israelites as follows. In time to come, when your children asked their fathers, what's the meaning of these stones? Tell your children. Here the Israelites crossed the Jordan on dry land. For Jehovah your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you crossed, just as the Lord your God did to the Sea of Reeds, which he dried up before us until we crossed. Thus all the people of the earth shall know how mighty is the hand of Jehovah and you shall fear Jehovah your God always. When Joshua says that we're going to tell this story to the descendants, he says, I want you to tell them this, that this event at the Jordan River took place just like what God did when he brought you out of the land of Egypt. He dried up. That's comparing a crossing of the Jordan to the Sea of Reeds. Now, somebody at that point should have said, "Ah, that's a little bit of an exaggeration. The Jordan isn't that impressive. You know, it's just just not that impressive to cross the Jordan on dry land, and especially not to compare it to such a marvelous uh, event at the sea. But these two events are compared with each other in another place, too. Look at Psalm, uh, Psalm 66. Psalm six six. Again, most people want their water deeper. Can you imagine the children of Israel complaining at the Jordan saying, you know, this just isn't that impressive? I mean, I'm just not that impressed with this God. I think that, that that's a little bit what we're doing here. Psalm six six. He turned the sea into dry land. They crossed the river on foot. We therefore rejoice in Him. So it's talking about the the miracle at the sea and at the river. These are alike. Look at Psalm 114. I'm going to read this, Psalm 114. When Israel went forth from Egypt, the house of Jacob, from a people of strange speech, Judah became his holy one, Israel his dominion. The sea saw them and fled. Jordan ran backward. Mountains skipped like rams, hills like sheep. What alarmed you, O sea, that you fled. Jordan, that you ran backward. Mountains that you skipped like rams, hills like sheep. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool of water and flinty rock into a fountain. Now, In my opinion, I think that the miracle when they crossed the Jordan was a miracle indeed. God dried up the riverbed, had the waters stand up in a heap to allow them to cross dry shod. Joshua compares that to the crossing at the sea. He was at both. It wouldn't make sense to compare the two if they weren't comparable. Now, there's another miracle uh, water crossing that I'll touch on quickly. Uh, 2 Kings 2, Kings 2 uh, verse 6 through 8. Elijah said to him, Stay here, for Jehovah has sent me onto the Jordan. As Jehovah lives and as you live, I will not leave you," he said, and the two of them went on. Fifty men of the disciples of the prophets followed and stood by at a distance. From them, at two of them stopped into the Jordan. Or stopped at the Jordan. Therefore, Elijah took his mantle, rolling it up. He struck the water and divided it to the right and the left, so that the two of them crossed over on dry land. That's a miracle at the Jordan in the days of Elijah. Look down at verse thirteen. He picked up Elijah's mantle. Which he had dropped from him, and he went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan, taking the mantle which had dropped from Elijah. He struck the water. He said, Where is Jehovah, the God of Elijah? And as he struck the water, it parted to the right and to the left, and Elisha crossed over. Another miracle. Now, it's not in, it shouldn't be to us to say, you know, I'm just not impressed with those miracles. I think that the bottom line is a miracle is a miracle, and they're compared because they're comparable. Now, uh, one quick point as I wrap up this class today. Next, we get into um, chapter 16 of Exodus. There's a story of the Sabbath. Uh, and the children of Israel, are it's about the manna and how they are to learn the the discipline of Shabbat. That For this many days, you're going to go out and you're going to pick up manna, but on the seventh day, you're not going to because that's the Sabbath. You're going to pick up extra before the Sabbath, and uh, this is a test to see if you're going to keep the commandments of God or not. Now, what I want you to do is think about this. We are not yet at Sinai. They've not yet, in other words, this is one of those questions where we have to ask, is it chronologically out of order? So they've not been given the commandment of the Sabbath. Now, there. let me say this. There are plenty of people who say, well, they, they always knew all the laws, that the law that was given at Sinai was taught by Adam, you know, down the chain to Seth and, and so forth, and there are rabbinic legends about this. Uh, we get in, in Genesis chapter 26 and verse 5 that Abraham kept uh, the laws, the statutes, the Torahs. And so people say, ah, he knew the Torah, uh, but that's not talking about the Sinai revelation. Now, the question becomes, It's it, we've not yet gotten to Sinai, but I'm not suggesting that Sabbath wasn't known prior. I want you to get this. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, we read about the Sabbath. God created the earth in this many days and rested on the Shabbat, therefore. So it could be that the Sabbath is known and that they are being instructed at this phase in the wilderness journey. But I do want to suggest that Exodus 16, whether you accept that or not, that Exodus 16 is chronologically out of place or highly edited. Look with me at Exodus 16, and I want to read verse 31 through 36. The house of Israel named it manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and it tasted like wafers and honey. And Moses said, this is what Jehovah had commanded. Let one omer of it be kept throughout the ages, in order that they may see the bread that I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar, put an omer of manna in it, and place it before Jehovah to be kept throughout your ages. As Jehovah had commanded Moses, Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. And the Israelites ate 40 years, ate manna 40 years, until they came to a settled land they ate the manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. The omer is a tenth of an ephah. Now, I want you to point out a couple of things. Number uh, Verse 33 says that they would lay this before Jehovah. That typically means in the tabernacle before the Ark of the Covenant. And You say, well, it doesn't necessarily mean that. Well, look at the next verse. Verse 34 says to put it before the testimony, but we don't have the testimony yet. The testimony is the 10-word tablet that you put the ark of the testimony, you put the testimony in the box of the testimony, you put the omer of uh, manna before the ark of the testimony, but we don't have the ark of the testimony. So this is written at a different time. And then it says that they ate, verse 35, the children of Israel ate manna for 40 years until they came to a settled land. They haven't even gotten to Sinai at this point in the story, and it's already telling us that they ate it for 40 years and they would continue to eat it until they come to the land. Now, that it's referred to in Joshua chapter 5, verse 10 and 12. says they crossed over, and from that point on, they didn't eat manna anymore. My proposal to you is that this section of text for certain, is edited into the t- uh, text later. So it's it's written into the story because it's it's got to be after the 40 years. You understand the point? Again, we're just looking to see what we can discern from the text. Now, I've covered a good bit of material today. Uh, some, I know that Not everyone, believe me, I know this, not everyone agrees with my view on this or any other subject. And I encourage you, whatever view you have on these things, I want you to make sure that it measures up to what you read in the text. Does it make sense? Can you get there from here? I want you to look closely at these things. Now, we are just beginning the wilderness journey. Now, just so you know, there are more. Uh, when we talk about the location of Horeb and Sinai, there are more than fifteen proposals, solid proposals, where people have written books and they say, "This is it. I'm telling you, this is it. This is the whole truth, nothing but the truth." And and I've got it all figured out. And so you're going to have disagreements. My point is not to put a red pen. Uh, of certainty on every location so much as just understand the basics. In in my view, the, the crossing of the sea is a fundamental, very key miracle. It is one of the greatest miracles in all the biblical narrative. And to know where it takes place is important to me. So I want to at least understand, is it in the northwest, in the delta region? Is it down by the Gulf of Sioux? I want to get that straight. And I don't want to be the judge who says that miracle isn't big enough if the biblical writers say it was. Now, we're going to pick up next week. Um, We're going to be at the mountain of God. And at the mountain of God, we're going to uh receive the story. We're going to read about the children of Israel receiving the the law. And so we're going to be talking about this beginning next week. Uh, details matter. Facts matter. Our goal is to search for the answers. The question for next week is, what happened at Horeb? The revelation of God's way, the ten words, the testimony. We pick up next week at the mountain of God. Don't miss it. Shabbat Shalom Shavuot Tov.